Okay. Good morning. I don't know what to say after that. Uh, I have the privilege of opening the Word for us this morning. Um, And if you don't have a uh, Bible, I'd love to, we'd love to get one in your hand. So if you can raise your hand, we'll get one to you because uh, it's really the Word of God that we want to look at, look to, and that God would speak to us through. Um, So Kevin will run around and and, uh, send that your way. You know, Solano Community Church, as well as all churches that call upon the name of Jesus and follow the Word of God, have a similar mission. Solano Community Church, uh, is our mission is to make and mature radically devoted Christ followers, to make disciples, to make and mature disciples. That, of course, is taken from uh, one of the last teachings of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's called the Great Commission. And in that passage, Jesus um, says... All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to to me. Right now, all authority has been given to him. No one is above him other than his father. And he gives us a charge, uh, his people, and that's to go and make disciples or apprentices of Jesus. To make disciples of all nations and to immerse them or baptize them in the name of God, name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is interesting. He says, and teach them to observe or obey everything that I commanded you. And then he promises to always be with his disciples. I'll always be with you in that mission. That's really important because in, in today's society, uh, I rub shoulders quite a bit. I live in Berkeley and I work out in Richmond and... Um, <clears throat> It, it seems really interesting when you bring up the subject of Christianity or the church or Christians. Uh, that pretty much goes all over the map. And I find that it's not a very helpful term anymore because it, it means so many different things for so many different people. I, uh, half the time that they talk about uh, Christians in the church and the problems with it, I agree with them. I say, absolutely, I agree, I agree with that too. I said, I'm not a Christian. I'm, I'm a committed follower of Jesus disciple of Jesus. And it's really interesting, the stigma that's associated with the church is really drops off. The stigma that that falls off when you talk about Christianity or that church, because the next question is what denomination, and and usually it kind of goes, well, that's judgmental, and they're narrow-minded, and all these other things. But as soon as you push that away, and you you start the conversation about Jesus, categorically the conversation changes. Period. Jesus is in a category of, uh, of his own. Well, It's helpful to come back because if you look at the teaching of the New Testament, um, the word Christian or Christians only occurs three times. It's actually not the term. It's other believers called disciples Christians, but they they never referred to themselves as Christians. They referred to themselves as disciples, children of God, followers of Jesus. And I, I think that's very wise and discerning for us to continue to come back to Jesus. If he's our example and his instruction is what we should follow, then... We should follow that. Well, he says here that all authority has been given to him, and now he wants to work something out through us. And what he wants to work out through us is a mission of making other disciples. And he says in doing that, there's really kind of two things. As you go to the world, there's two things. Immerse them in the name of God. The word baptism means immerse. Immerse them in the name of God. And secondly, teach them to obey everything that I commanded. 
So it's not a head thing. It's an obedience thing. That's kind of a categorical game changer because if you kind of sit down and you see Jesus as our central authority, we got two things. How do we revolve all of our lives around the name of God so that we see God in everything and what he wants to do? And we actually become focused on obeying him, not talking about him, not just singing about him, not having facts about him, but obeying him. That's a very different calling that seems to me than just being a Christian. Well, what did Jesus command? If he asked us to obey him, what did he command? Well, Matthew is so wonderful. He recorded the words of Jesus because in another passage, uh, in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 22, um, he gives us where Jesus summarizes what the commandments are. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, these are a couple of religious groups focused on religion, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What are we supposed to obey? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and foremost commandment. And a second is like it, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Everything is summed up in learning to love. So the mission of God is about becoming a loving person. Isn't that wonderful? Because that's who God is. God is a loving God. Now, words are important. So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, he doesn't just arbitrarily choose that word. He actually chooses that word and places it first. Because if you were to see and understand what it means to be a human being, you find that human beings are people who live from their heart. And by heart, the scriptures teach us, the heart is the central controlling center of your life and my life. It's the place where your will exists. It's the place where you treasure things. It's the place where you commit to things. That's your heart. Well, I got a confession, all right? I don't love God with all my heart. You don't either, though. Why are you looking at me like that? You don't either. And I got another confession. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I got a problem. You got a problem. In fact, can we find anybody that has loved God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their mind? One person. That was Jesus. Imagine that. Never once did he stray from loving his father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind. Never once. And mind you, that was in in light of the greatest temptation that could ever be thrown to him. The greatest rebellion, people that turned their back on him, they even crucified him. And never once did he not love his father and love his neighbor as himself. Just let that settle in for a sec. We found someone that did it. The perfect man. His name is Jesus. Well, I want to emphasize as we get into here, if we have a faulty view of what it means to be a human being, we're going to miss it. So, for example, it's easy to think that our problems in our society are behavioral. We just had a mass murder in Isla Vista. My son lives in Isla Vista. Talked to him yesterday. He says, I've never heard so many gunshots in my life. 
multiple people killed, murdered. What was the problem there? Was it a behavioral problem? The problems you find in your own house, when you raise your voice or rude or just, you know, the things that you and I do, is that a behavioral problem? What God does is he says, actually, it's, it's, if you think your problem is behavioral, you miss the mark of what it means to be a human. The issue for, uh, for you and I in being human is our heart. Our heart is the controlling center of our lives. Well, if, if the heart is the controlling center, in fact, we're commanded to love God with all of our heart, wouldn't, it, wouldn't the scriptures teach us that in multiple places? Well, it does. If you go from Genesis to Revelation, the beginning of the Bible to the end, what you find is the theme of the human heart, the human heart, the callousness, the hardness, the string of the human heart is really the thematic problem that you and I have. been the same problem. <clears throat> Jesus confirms that in Matthew 15. He's dealing with the religious guys again, and they're upset because the disciples were not washing their hands and doing the right things before they ate. So they were having a big beef over washing hands. So listen to what Jesus says. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth, Jesus says, passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So you see, if our only solution to kind of these issues in our society is pass laws, so we prosecute, we never get to the real issue. And what does Jesus say? Why is it that, that there was a guy down in Isla Vista doing what he did? It was his heart. So let me give you a principle. Whatever owns your heart will rule your behavior. Whatever owns your heart will rule your behavior. So if you focus on behavior, you miss the, the very focus of what God says is the center of your being. And you actually miss what Jesus said he was going to come and do. Because if Jesus was going to come in and tell you to not do this and love this and don't do that, right? Because that's the way... Christians are often perceived, you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do that, right? It's behavior. We miss Jesus because the focus of Jesus is he's going to strike at the heart of your problem and my problem. My biggest problem is my heart. Strayed. It's twisted. I got problems in my heart. I love things that I shouldn't love way too much and I don't love God enough. Well, What Jesus is saying here is that we do not, first and foremost, have a behavioral problem. Now, just calm down, because isn't that relaxing? Does that explain why Jesus could have a prostitute come to him, and he's like, welcomes her, and he doesn't get on her behavior? He goes to the heart, whereas the religious guy who manages behavior, he he gets on them? Seems to me, we want to focus on Jesus. Today, we're going to get into a passage from Matthew that addresses really what Jesus came to change, and that is your heart and my heart. Let's go to him first in prayer. Father, we, uh, we bow our head. We bow our heads, and we come before you boldly because of Jesus. We know in our own hearts um, we've got a bit of a problem. We thank you that Jesus never had a problem with his heart that 
He perfectly loved you, Father, and perfectly loved his neighbor. That his sacrifice was on our behalf. And we cling to him. We pray for uh, the wonderful beauty that uh, you bring about. Pastor Andrew's marriage and what you're doing there, we pray that you would bless that marriage and build that foundation upon Jesus. Where Andrew and his wife would first and foremost love you, Jesus, above all things and not even each other the most. And the ugly side, Lord, too, in in Santa Barbara, we pray for the people who are suffering now, the deep wounds. Lord, we just cry out and we, we ask for your mercy and that you would move your people into those worlds to love those people, the families that have lost loved ones or hurt. Even pray for the father of the son who committed this. Turn him to Jesus, Lord. Now speak to us in our hearts, Lord. Speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and he sowed. Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak in parables? Why do you do that? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. I say that because do you know that the story that we just read describes you right now? No one escapes the story that we just read. It actually is how God sees you, how he can see you, and ultimately how you can see yourself. This describes you. Well, it's helpful to kind of walk through a few things here. What does the story tell us? Well, the first thing is you see the source sows the seed, which is the word. Now, Jesus spends half of his time correcting people on their wrong interpretation of what the word says, right? So if we go and we look at um, the word that's being taught, there's a couple hints. We could do the Christian thing and, and basically tell us what a lot of people actually believe Christianity is about and what the Bible is about. It's about don't do this and do that, right? That's not what it teaches, though. In fact, it's kind of interesting in a couple places. <clears throat> the first soil in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, who is Jesus? He's the king. He's the king. And what we find is, there was no New Testament when, this, when Jesus was living. You realize that, right? There was only the Jewish Bible. There was only the Old Testament. And so we go back to that. What was that pointing people towards? Was it, don't do this and do this? Or was it actually something more focused? You'd be surprised, maybe, to realize that the entire Old Testament actually points us to a promised prophet, priest, and king. Guess who that is? It's just Jesus. That's why if you look at verse 16 and 17, Jesus says to these disciples, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. But I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, who would those be? Those would be those that preceded them. Long to see what you see. What did they see? They saw Jesus. Here he is standing before them. God was going to do something through this man. And he says, and they did not see it though. And they wanted to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the sowing of the word is not just the the Bible in general. It's actually the sowing of the person and authority and work of Jesus. That's really important. The sowing of the word is the word of Jesus and who he is and what he is going to do in the human heart. That's important. Let me ask you a question. Can we get a little controversial? Yeah, oh yeah. 
<clears throat> the name Jesus means God saves. He was specifically uh, commanded, their parent, Jesus' parents, to call himself Jesus saves. If you're in the men's group, you can't answer this one. Okay? <clears throat> Jesus saves, and, and what we see is Jesus is saving us from our, our, our corrupt hearts, our sin, and the judgment that is coming upon us. How is it that Jesus saves, though? So my question for you is, are we saved by works? Are we saved by works? The answer to that is absolutely yes. They just don't happen to be our own works. We are saved by the work of Jesus. We are redeemed by the work of Jesus. Our faith and trust is not in this abstract faith in some God. It's the fact that God became a man and perfectly loved God and perfectly loved his neighbor and went to a cross and was punished when he shouldn't have been. And our punishment was declared on him. So the sowing of the word is that God is going to do something to redeem your heart and my heart through this man, Jesus. Well, he gives us um, these four conditions of the heart, four states of the heart. There's the path. I call that the hard heart. The hard heart. There's a second heart, which is the obstructed heart. It's that, that rocky soil that doesn't allow there's any penetration because the rocks hold the, the just shallow soil. And, and Jesus and his authority cannot get deep. Then there's the, the weeds or the thorns. The, yeah, the, the roots go deeper, but there's competition. And it's choked out. And then lastly, you have the res- responsive heart, receptive heart that receives Jesus and his authority. So here's what happens. As you go from the hard heart to the responsive heart, it's all about the authority of Jesus in your life, in your heart. Remember, whoever, whoever rules your heart owns your behavior. And so the hard heart, that can be the nicest guy you've ever met in your life. This is not like a snaggletooth demon. This is, can be the most upstanding, righteous guy nicest guy in the world. But he trusts in his own goodness and he rejects whom? Jesus. It's all about the authority of Jesus. So if you look what this is about, this is all about how does Jesus make his way into having authority over all of your heart and the rule over all of your heart so that his love and his grace and his mercy has every bit of you. So the the hard heart, Jesus has no authority or influence because we reject him. We might even be religious. That might even be you right now. The obstructed heart, Jesus has shallow authority and influence. There's no depth. The divided heart, Jesus has deeper authority, but there's a whole lot of competition. And lastly, the responsive heart is Jesus has authority and influence over everything. No, we have to recognize that our hearts are basically a big combination of all these, right? We use this in men's discipleship to learn how to understand ourselves. So I can tell you areas of my heart that are hard. There's obstructions. There's competition in my heart right now where sometimes things other than Jesus wins. And there's areas that it seems like God is gracious and, and leading We don't have time to do all that, so what we're going to do is we're just going to focus on one of those hearts. It's the obstructed heart. Verses 20 and 21. 
<clears throat> we picked this one because you're here. So it sounds like you want to hear about Jesus. So we'll see. Let me give you an ability to say, well, where's Jesus in your heart? So verse 20 and 21. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution, that's pain, when pain arises on account of the word, on account of obedience to Jesus and fidelity to Jesus, immediately he falls away. So picture your heart with a big boulder in it. There's an obstruction. And there's two things it talks about here. One of them is this person has no root in themselves. Um, I've got to hand it to Charles Spurgeon on this one. And this probably really applies to younger kids. Listen up, guys. Junior high, middle school. You know what that means? <clears throat> Jesus has no root in themselves. I didn't grow up in a home like this, but my guess is some, if you're a, a, a youth, somebody brought you. Let's just say it's your parents brought you. Your parents brought you. And the reason why you're here is not because of Jesus, it's because your parents. And you go to youth group because of parents or because other friends are there. Your friends are there. And you pray and yeah, you read your Bible and you do all those things, but ultimately, you still have not come to the place where God works in your heart so that you yourself have submitted your life to Jesus. Parents, that's going to say something very important to you as well. Because really what parenting is about is shepherding your child's heart toward Jesus. It's not about just behavior management, right? Manage your kid's behavior so they look good for you and you don't look bad. Behavior is important, isn't it? Especially at a restaurant, you know, you can't throw food and stuff like that. But ultimately what parenting is, is is continuing to point that child's heart toward Jesus so that they surrender their life to Jesus, their heart. It's very easy to look on a, on a child. It's very easy if you're a youth to think that you're doing the right things. But again, behavior is not the issue. It's who owns your heart. Where is Jesus in relation to your heart? So in this case, the question comes to you now as adults. Have you ever submitted your life to Jesus? Not are you call yourself a Christian. You were raised in a Christian home. Have you done religious things? Do you pray? The issue is have you ever come to a place of recognizing your heart? Is it a place that you're separated from God? And you submit to your life saying, Jesus, you and you alone are my hope, and I give you my heart. Not just head knowledge, but your heart. Well, he goes on, he says there's another issue, and that's the shallowness of, of Jesus' authority in your heart. So a person turns to Jesus, there's immediate responsiveness, but the problem is there's these obstructions. And the obstructions keep you from seeing Jesus have greater and greater authority. I want to tell you about three obstructions. There's many more. This is what we do in men's discipleship, helping men think through and pray and understand their own hearts. First one, intellectual obstacles. I grew up in public schools. I grew up every day, every week, drinking of the evolution doctrine over and over that that there's no such thing as creation, that that's all faith, and there's no intellectual credibility to there being a creator. It's all evolution. Well, when I get to college, I have to wrestle through that because I got, you know, I don't know. Here's the problem. Two things. If evolution is true, can the first part of the Bible be true that says that God created the heavens and the earth? 
I got an intellectual problem here, right? You see how that for many people can turn you in? It did for me for a while until I basically said, I got to do something about this. Because if evolution is true, what do I do with the Jesus and the authority of the word? It may not be evolution or something, because I resolved that. Man, I, it took a while, working through issues. Is there any intellectual credibility to that? Maybe it's an issue of how can there be a good God and there be so much evil in the world? That may be going in the hearts and minds of people down in Isla Vista, near Santa Barbara right now. How can there be a good God when some stupid kid goes around and slaughters all these people? It's an intellectual barrier, obstacle. How about, maybe you're at a place where you're going, come on, you're telling me that this is God's word spoken through these guys? These loopy-headed guys, you see how they're like? How can there be miracles? You ever seen somebody, you ever seen somebody raised from the dead? I've never seen anybody, so how can that happen? You see, we, we have to identify things that act as a barrier an obstruction to the authority of Jesus. And there can be and there are intellectual challenges. Oh, come on, don't look at me like that. It's like I'm the only one that has those kind of issues. Anybody have intellectual head scratchers? Now guess what? That can act as, a, as, an, as an obstruction to keeping the authority of Jesus from going deep in your heart. So you stand back saying, I don't know. So what do you do? Number one, number one, <clears throat> you have to recognize that Jesus is not afraid of your intellectual questions. He's the one that, as he says, created all this. And there are, there's ability to come to God saying, will you lead me to people to help me resolve some of these issues? For me, it took a long time, but most of my intellectual obstacles have been resolved. They're pebbles now, not boulders. God doesn't promise an answer for every intellectual question you have. Never does he promise that. But he does say that your faith is reasonable and can be reasonable in Jesus. And so if you've got these big boulders, intellectual boulders in your heart, it just, it just keeps this, you've got to do something about that. And if you do nothing, guess what? Jesus will remain shallow in your heart. So what do you do? You can come to Jesus and God's people saying, I need help, Lord. Now let me say something here. God may not allow his answer to come, you, to come to you directly. You know what more than likely is going to happen? He's going to force you to go to other people. Because the wonderful thing about God and his grace is he's not going to allow you to get isolated and do your own thing. He's going to continue to drive us to each other because there will be people that can help you work through those intellectual issues. Second obstacle, uh, obstra- uh, obstacle. How about relational obstacles? Oh boy, this is a big one. You ever been damaged by other people? Bruised? Your heart is bruised. I talked to a guy a while back, and the pastor ran off with the uh, secretary. I never want that guy. I never want to have anything to do with Christianity and Jesus and everything again. What did that have to do with Jesus? But see how the jump is. That's why I think so, so many people, as I talk about Jesus, they are so quick to push away. Why? They're pushing away from bad relationships they've had with people that call themselves Christians or disciples. Because that's why the description comes about being judgmental, narrow-minded, right? 
If you go back to the first century, how were the disciples described? They were described in terms of these are the people that love. They would take babies that were orphaned and scoop them up and, and their whole dis- they were known for love. They were known for something categorically different. That's not what Christians are known for today. We got a problem. And so maybe you have some damaged relationships that have twisted your heart, tweaked your heart, so there's a big stay away. Spiritual authority has been abused in your life. All those things can reach into your heart and drive Jesus away. Anybody here have any pain? They can actually push you away from Jesus? Oh, boy. Well, what do, you, what do you do in that case? First off, let me ask you a question. Let's go back to Jesus. Where do we always turn? Did Jesus have any relational pain? Was Jesus ever betrayed? Was Jesus ever lied to? Was Jesus ever crucified? Did his closest companions abandon him? That's why you can go to Jesus with your relational pain because it's not an abstract for him. He understands tears. Notice what he says at the end of that uh, middle section about um, new quotes from the, the prophet Isaiah. Did you catch it? Listen to what he says. Verse 15, for this people's heart has grown dull and, their, and with their ears they can barely hear and with their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and then what does he say? And I will heal them. I will heal them. Jesus is the great healer of people with relational pain. Maybe you're the person that's driving other people away because of your heart. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. You just get mean sometimes. Something's got to do with your heart. And if you can step back and say, this is a wonderful thing about Jesus. The gospel of Jesus allows you to literally be honest about where your heart is really at. You can say, we see this happen in men's discipleship. Men coming and saying, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm a jerk. Rather than covering it up or making excuses. Jesus has an incredible capacity to touch the human heart when there's relational pain, to break the boulders, the obstacles of your relational pain. Believe me, he does. Lastly, One last obstacle. Experiential obstructions. Some people have experiences. I'm fortunate. I haven't had an experience when I was younger where, uh, say, my mother died of cancer. And I have this just such pain of how could God do that? More than likely, if we sit down and we allow you to tell your story, we allow you to 
allowed to roll, sorry about that, um, allowed it to roll, you would probably pick up on certain pain points of your story, wouldn't you? These experiences. Probably the biggest issue in our society right now, dealing with the experiential pain, obstacles, is the area of sexuality. To, to know and follow Jesus and to be faithful sexually is important to God. God's a creator of sex. It's a wonderful gift, as Jesus described it. So I was talking, for example, with a young man recently, dating a gal, and he was so upset because why can't I be involved with my girlfriend sexually? God is just sucking the life out of me. Right? So here you have this strong experience, in this case, sex, and a desire for it. But knowing and following Jesus is a different place. And you have conflict. What do you do? Well, let me give you, let me round the picture out for you a little bit. There are three fundamental ways you can come to know and believe something is true. First way, experience. I've hit my thumb with a hammer before. Oh, that hurt. In the area of sexuality, there's experiences that people have, right? There's all sorts of experiences people have. They come to believe something is true. Secondly, there's reason. I've never been to China. I know it exists. I've never experienced it. How do I know? Using reason and logic and all sorts of things, right? So there's experience and, and reason. But there's a third way. And the third way is revelation. The third way is revelation. If you read here in verse 11, they ask him, why, Jesus, do you speak in par- parables? Verse 11 says, Jesus answered them, to you it has been given to know, there's that knowing, a way of knowing, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. That's revelation. That's something that the disciples could never know through experience or reason. It's that third way, revelation. Right? So what do you do now when we're a bag full of experiences, reasons, and revelation, and they're in conflict? What do you do? That's a big challenge, isn't it? So I said positive to uh, the young man. Well, yeah, God does call you to a, a, a great calling with your sexual fidelity and faithfulness in that area. So are you going to now take it as God is going to rob you of good? And that's your interpretation of God because your experience is so strong. Or could revelation and your reason actually lead you to a different view of sexuality? Same things happen with same-sex attraction. Strong experiences in people are redefining categories. And in many ways, they're trying to redefine revelation. You see how that works? So if you have experiential obstacles, you have to deal with them. And my guess is, I'm going I'm I'm to speak generally here for guys. For guys, the way we kind of are is there's this, it's kind of this big blob of stuff inside of us. And we don't necessarily know how to talk about it. It just is there. We don't understand our hearts. We don't understand. And that's why we need each other to work and pray towards actually understanding ourselves so that we can understand the intellectual obstacles we have in our hearts. 
we can understand the relational obstacles we have and the experiential obstacles. Do you understand them? Your own heart? Well, where do you go with them? You're going to find that Jesus is continually the place we go because Jesus is real and Jesus is going to lead us to each other. The interesting part about this is as you come and surrender your life and your heart to Jesus, this middle passage basically says this. The condition of your heart will determine what you can actually see and what you can hear. As your heart turns away from God, you see less and you hear less. And as you turn toward Jesus, you see more and you hear more from God. That's what the passage says. That's a scary thought. Which means you have to do something with your obstacles. It says there that pain, when pain comes about, how do you get pain? Well, my kids are in Berkeley schools. They're in a class. How many of you believe in creation? One hand. You see, there's all sorts of pain that can come from following Jesus because of the obstacles. But for me, just in that issue, who here believes in creation? Because, see, God has helped me work through it. I'm in a painful relationship. My wife and I sometimes get a tiss or tat or my kids and I, whatever. Okay, that's the way life is. But before, man, I had a hard time thinking everything was bad because God is helping me work through relational obstacles to the place of saying Jesus can work there. So, where's your heart? This story describes you right now. You have a hard heart? Portion of your hard heart? It's all about this to Jesus. You know what you do if you have a hard heart? This is so glorious. You tell Jesus you got a hard heart. He's going to go, yeah, I know. He's not going to be offended. He already knows. You got obstacles in your heart? Intellectual, relational, experiential? Maybe you don't even know what they are. You're just this one big blob of stuff. Jesus, I need help. I need help to understand my heart. <laughs> I can't understand why my behavior is the way it is because I can't understand my heart. You can bring that to Jesus. And you can bring that to God's people to help you. How about that uh, divided heart? You ever get attracted into the world, into things of the world, and desire for other things? Oh, boy. Story of our lives, isn't it? Jesus will help you so that you love people and use things rather than love things and use people. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to pray and we're going to come before Jesus, the table. That's the solution right here, coming before Jesus. Bring your heart before Jesus. Now, if you're a person that has never given your life to Jesus, you've never said... Jesus, I'm coming to you. My heart is, but your heart is not. And I want to bring my heart to you. Let me encourage you. Don't don't take communion. Take Jesus. Take Jesus. If you've taken Jesus and your heart is in that process somewhere of moving toward a place where the fruitfulness of, of responsive heart is what God wants, take communion. But let me encourage you to bring your heart before Jesus. The good, the bad, 
and the ugly and lay it at the feet of the cross and receive the goodness of God in Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, we bow our heads and we... I think my biggest problem...